going to close our series, uh, finish our series uh, today that we started several weeks ago called Upside Down Kingdom, where we are looking at uh, some of the stories that Jesus told. And in telling these stories, he kind of did this thing where he, he said, you know, you know the world looks like this, but I'm telling you my kingdom will look like this. And he kind of flips things on, it, on their head, and it's very surprising and, and shocking at times to people. And so uh, the last story we're going to deal with, uh, you know, the, these parables that Jesus told, last one we're going to deal with is one uh, that was kind of a favorite of mine as a kid because of the content matter, because Jesus gives us a picture here of a couple of people who die and go to very different places, right? And so this is we call this the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And, um, and so it's in Luke chapter 16, if you want to turn there. We don't have a scripture on screen this morning, so uh, turn there in your fake phone Bible, or if you've got a real Bible, uh, you can turn there, Luke chapter 16. Or if you want a, uh, uh, an usher to bring you a Bible, raise your hand, and, and we'll have somebody get one to you right now. And uh, anyway, that'd be good. So Luke chapter 16, and in this uh, story, Jesus, you know, again, tells the story of these guys that after death have these very different destinations. Now, uh, the, to- the topics of what happens after we die has something that's always been, I think, to a lot of people and to me, kind of fascinating. Like, you know, I, I-, I want to know more about that. And yet it seems it's kind of a mixed bag of information in the Bible. I'm not really sure what to expect there. In fact, the truth is, most of what we think about concerning, say, heaven or hell um, actually comes more from outside influences than it does come from Scripture. If you look what Scripture says about these topics, oftentimes it paints a, a bit of a different picture than maybe what you're thinking about it is or what your presumptions about it are. Because, you know, we've just been shaped by a lot of uh, different things. For instance, like the topic of hell, most of what we tend to think about as hell doesn't actually come from the Bible, but comes from an old document called Dante's Inferno. And, and over time, you know, this, this kind of popular document, document got mashed up within Christian thinking. And, and so we have this kind of weird view that, again, not necessarily the one that comes from Scripture. Same thing with heaven. Like as a kid, my view of heaven came from like Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker and, and stuff like that. Like it was just, you know, you'd, you'd see them, you know, get over, hit over the head with an anvil or something. And then they start floating up to heaven and they get a robe and a harp and bouncing around from cloud to cloud, right? And so... I, I just, we have these kind of mixed views of, of what that's all about. And, and then add in the complication of multiple religions across the world that each have a different idea about what the afterlife is going to be like or if there's going to be an afterlife. And, and so it becomes kind of a complex story. So Jesus, in telling this story, gives us this kind of glimpse into that world, which, by the way, I'm not sure that we should put a lot of literal stock into it. We have to remember that Jesus is telling a fictional story here, uh, and so it's, he's not necessarily laying out the theology of heaven and hell. In fact, we'll talk about later, his point is something a little bit different. Uh, but I just want to go through the story. We'll read it, and, uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and then, and then we'll dive into kind of what I think, why it is that Jesus told this story. So we're in Luke chapter 16, <clears throat> verse 19. And um, get a quick drink. There was a rich man. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, 
The fact that he was clothed in purple it doesn't mean he was like a Prince fan or something like that. It, this, this was the color of people in authority, um, you know, kings and royal people and, and, um, or, and, and people trying to mimic the lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, would, would oftentimes uh, wear purple. But purple was considered kind of a luxurious uh, fabric. We would consider it a color. They thought of it as a fabric. All right, so... So anyway, he says, uh, um, this rich man, clothed in purple, fine linen, feasted sumptuously every day. That's a great word, sumptuously. And, uh, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, uh, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, uh, first of all, again, Jesus telling a, a fictional story here. Not, don't confuse this man, Lazarus, with Jesus' friend named Lazarus, who he uh, raised from the dead. Uh, that totally, totally different guy. So here the story of fake Lazarus. Um, he uh, is this poor man who basically is homeless. He stays right outside the house of the rich man. And, uh, and just his, his greatest desire was just to be to get a few scraps from the rich man's table. Um, and that never really happened. And on top of that, uh, he, evidently he was covered in sores and the dogs would come and lick his sores. Now, our modern thinking about dogs makes us look at that and go, oh, well, at least the dogs, you know, were taking care of him. And, uh, but, but he was, I guarantee you, he was not looking at the situation going, oh, puppies. No, it wasn't like that. Like dogs back then, you know, they, they weren't as quite, uh, quite like the pets that we think of today. And so dogs generally m- meant kind of wild dogs, wild animals that would roam around a city or, a, or an area, countryside or whatever. And so if you had dogs approaching you to kind of lick on you, it was not a, a good cuddly puppy moment. It was like, ah, dogs, you know, it was more like that, you know, so it was just not, not a good thing, all right? So this is what happens. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. We'll talk about that in just a second. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So the poor man dies. He's carried off by the angels to Abraham's side. So some of your versions, some of the older versions, maybe, maybe say Abraham's bosom or the bosom of Abraham, Abraham's side. It was, a, um, it was kind of the language they had for where the righteous went after they died. Abraham was the father of Israel, so it would be all those who were considered Abraham's children. Whether they be literal or spiritual children, they would go to, uh, to their you know, forefather Abraham type of a thing, okay? Uh, oftentimes, this same place that is here referenced as the uh, uh, Abraham's side or the bosom of Abraham is sometimes referenced as paradise. Uh, same, same kind of place. We'll talk about that in just a second. The rich man, however, he dies and he's buried. Now, this is not inconsequential, the fact that he was buried because it was a kind of another um, point to the fact that this was a wealthy man, the fact that he could afford an actual burial, that people cared enough about him to actually take his body and have it buried, whereas the other guy, he just dies and the angels carry him off, right? You know, he, no, there's nobody there that cares about him or loves him enough or has enough money to see him buried uh, as opposed to the rich man. So the rich man, he dies. 
and he goes to this place called Hades. Now, Hades um, is kind of a complex thing. The word Hades is a Greek word, and it literally means the abode of the dead or the grave, something to that effect. Now, oftentimes when we think of Hades, we tend to think of what? You can say it. We're in church. It's fine. There you go. Hell. 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 Um, and so, so yeah, yeah, go ahead. And so we tend to think of that. Actually, if you look at kind of Haiti, the word Hades kind of has a journey in Scripture. So if you, you go way back deep into the Old Testament, Hades uh, was more of a generic term just for the grave. And so those who were righteous or unrighteous would go to Hades. It was just the, the grave. It was kind of this generic term for where dead people went, okay? And so, uh, and then somewhere around the, the period of time where Israel was in captivity in Babylon, the theology shifted a little bit. And you, we start to see a scripture, a distinction of Hades being the place for the unrighteous dead, and, and then the Abraham's side or paradise or whatever being the place for the righteous dead. Um, and so that kind of distinction kind of takes place. So Jesus here tells us this, again, fictional story, to, and he's using the language and the theology, the way of thinking, you know, that, that's common to them, that's known to them, and he, so this is the story that he tells, okay? Now, well, let me see, where am I? Okay, yeah, let me finish the story. Okay, so he says, and he called out, verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, this is the rich man calling out, uh, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, that, um, the rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, when he, when he references Moses and the prophets, he's not literally talking about Moses, he's referring to the books of Moses or the law. So he's saying they have the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was their word for the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, okay? He says they have, they have that. They have the law and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Verse 30, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead which is a, a real, if you think about it, kind of a, a bit of foreshadowing that Jesus gives us there. That, you know, they won't even be convinced. If they haven't listened to what has come ahead of them, they're not even going to be convinced by somebody if, if they were to even rise from the dead, Jesus knowing he'd be rising from the dead. And he gives them, you know, so, which is true. I mean, how many people, you know, were, were eyewitnesses to that event that still doubted, still had trouble submitting their lives in faith to, to Jesus Christ. It was, you know, even today, you know, whatever, it's still, it's still an issue. Now, let me talk just a little bit, just for the sake of some background, let me talk a little bit more about this concept of where the righteous dead go and where the unrighteous dead go. So if you've been here very long, you've heard me explain this a few times, and so let me try to explain it again. So 
the way the Bible talks about um, the afterlife and, and the plans that God are working out and, and you know, what our future looks like and all that kind of stuff, the way the Bible speaks of it is in terms of the entire story of the Bible. It's best to not just simply think about where am I going to go when I die, but where does this fit into the entire story that God is writing through through all of you know creation and human history and everything else. And so the way it works is that God creates this good and perfect world uh, where he is present with it and, it, and, and the, the first people in creation are, are in perfect unity with him and everything else. And then sin comes into the world and it fractures God's good creation so that we now then have this world that we all live in, this tangible world that we can see and experience and everything else that we can obviously look around and go, it is broken, it is fallen, it's headed to no good. It's just, you know, I mean, there's a lot of problems in this world, right? And so the other side that fractured then would be the, the, the kind of spiritual realm where God dwells. Um, call it the kingdom of heaven, call it the kingdom of God, call it whatever you want to call it. It's this spiritual realm. Now, a lot of times our thinking has been in terms of heaven being way up in the clouds, out in the universe, someplace distant that we go to. But actually the way the Bible describes it is that God's realm is actually all around us, kind of invisible to us, almost like a a separate dimension. If you're more of a science-y thinking type of person, a separate dimension where God's realm, the realm of heaven, is all around us. I think this is why, now, I, don't always, I don't always put a lot of stock in all of these stories and things that you hear, but I think this is why so often it's so common that when someone is, is dying and crossing from death into life, they begin to have visions of heaven. I think that they are in that thin place crossing from this realm into God's realm. My mother sat at the uh, deathbed of a man in our church when I was a kid and and told the story of that when, uh, in, in his parting words, the very last words he said as he was, you know, as he was dying, was he could see angels all around his bed. I don't think, you know, some people will say those are just the last, you know, firings of the synapses of the brain, you know, making you see things or whatever and, and whatever. But I, I think there's a crossing over that is taking place in, in those moments. And, and I think there's a, a reason we hear those stories so often. Now, that said, when we, when we die, those who would, the Bible would consider the righteous dead, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, go to the presence of God. Go to the presence of God. You enter, you go from this world into God's world. And those who don't go to what the Bible refers to as, as Hades, or the realm of the unrighteous dead, or, or, or whatever, however you want to refer to that. And then, that's just one of the phases. Then the next phase is that there is coming a day when God will make all things new again. He will set all things right, right where the rule of the day will be love and justice, where he will reign eternally and restore everything that has been broken creating a new heaven and a new earth so that the fractured kingdom becomes one again and God's realm becomes the same as this realm. And at that point, when the judgment happens, those who are in Christ will spend eternity in the presence of God in the new heaven and in the new earth. And those who are not will go to a place that we often refer to as hell. Now, 
That said, it is... Part of the challenge of getting our heads around all this doctrine of, of what happens when we die is untangling what Scripture says from what we think we know. And it's a hard process because especially if you've been taught things as a kid or you have certain impressions about things as a kid, as you get older, it becomes really hard to uh, uh, in, you know, unmesh all of that from what the Bible actually says. So I always encourage people, and I, and I try to do this on a fairly regular basis, to kind of think back over the spiritual things that you were taught, especially if you were taught them at a young age. Think back over what you think you know about a topic, say like heaven and hell, about all kinds of different topics in the Bible. Think back over what you think you know, and then, and then set yourself up for a little challenge of, of diving into the Word and go, I want to see what the Word actually says about this. Because it could be that society or just my weird impressions as a kid have added some things to this doctrine that aren't actually there. And I want to make sure what I believe is actually what's there. So I, I like to go, I'm, I'm a natural skeptic. And so I like to work through those things. It's, it's kind of, it gives me a charge. I really enjoy doing that. So anyway, but I would, I would just encourage you to do that because here's, here's the thing. When it comes to this idea of say hell, um, is there going to be an actual fiery hell um, that those who are outside of Christ go to? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, because, and the reason is, is because the Bible is such a mixed bag of literature and language. It's such a mixed bag of different... So you have books of poetry, and you have books of history, and you have books of of prophecy, and you have these things called apocalyptic books, which are very symbolic and very flowery language and that sort of thing. You have letters that people wrote, and you know, it's, just, it's not just a book, it's a collection of books, right? And so you, have, and so you don't read poetry the same way you read history, and, you, and, and you, you get that point, right? And so it's really important to kind of look at the language where the Bible does tell these stories, say, about hell, and maybe uses language of fire and go, okay, is this a is this meant to be perceived literally, or are they intentionally painting flowery language? And, and again, I don't know. I'm not going to try to answer that question today. What I do know is that there is a destination for us when we die. Whether you have lived for Christ or not, there is a destination. And when it comes to the concept of hell, that there will be a destination. It will be separation from God. It will be a dehumanizing of who you have had been before. It will be a constant and everlasting punishment. Is the fire literal? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. No more than I know if the streets of gold of heaven are literal streets of gold. It could be that it's just a, a, an interesting symbolic way of painting a picture for us that all of our deepest desires of our heart and everything that would possibly bring us joy and fulfillment will be there and it will be bliss, eternal bliss. Now, so whether it's literal fire or literal streets of gold, to me, that's not even the issue. The important thing to remember is there is a destination. There is a destination. And the picture that Jesus paints here of those two de destinations are quite different. One is described as anguish. Um, and, I mean, and I, I don't know about anybody else, but that doesn't sound good, right? So like I'm not into anguish. I, I try to avoid anguish at every opportunity. 
Um, and so, like, I don't want that to be my eternal reward, whatever that means or looks like. I don't want that to be my reward. Now, what I want us to focus on now is actually why Jesus told this story, because he didn't tell this story to give us a picture of heaven and hell. That wasn't the, that wasn't the real reason he told this story. The reason Jesus tells this story is all wrapped up into the idea of these two men, one being rich, one being poor, and he was saying judgment, and more specifically, justice is coming. Justice is coming. All throughout Scripture, uh, you, if, you, if you read the Bible, you cannot get away from the fact that there is a process here of undoing the evil and, and uh, wickedness that goes on in this world. And so much of that evil is piled on the rich, the powerful, the evil people. People who do wicked things, murdering, murderous, warmongers, uh, whatever, uh, people like that, people who are in power, who use their power to abuse those people underneath them, people who have wealth or position, who use their wealth and position to gain more wealth and position on the backs of the poor and the oppressed. This, this, these things come up over, you look in the Old Testament, one of the prophets tells us that the reason that um, the um, exile happened where the Israelites were exiled to a different nation is because they failed to uh, minister to the poor, the oppressed, the alien, and the refugee. They assumed that every blessing that they had was all for them, and they weren't looking out for people who had no one else looking out for them. You fast forward in the Old Testament, especially when you get to the end, when you get to the book of Revelation, over and over, judgment is piled on the rich, the powerful, the world leaders, the, you know, the people who are in control, who could use their wealth and their influence for the good of world and for the good of humanity, and instead use it to prop themselves up higher and higher and higher. Now, you look at this story of this rich man, and what... What you don't see in the story is kind of what scares me. Because Jesus doesn't say there was this guy and he was a lousy human being. He was a murderer. He was a wicked thief. He was a rapist. He, was, you know, he didn't pile up this list of sins and go, you know, and he was, he was wealthy and he went to hell. No, he was just wealthy. Just wealthy. He was a wealthy man who had somebody in need right outside his door that he walked over the top of or around every single day. He just stopped seeing him. He just ignored him. A man that all he could, the best he could hope for was, I wish I could just get a few scraps from this guy's table. Just a few scraps from this guy's table. But he couldn't see it. Even though he had so much, he couldn't see his brother in need right there outside of his doorsteps. Now, the tricky part of this story is, like, who's wealthy? And the tricky part of the story is, we, we live in America. 
And you may not consider yourself wealthy, but compared to the rest of the world, we have riches that most people will never experience. We have luxuries that most people will never experience. We have, uh, at times, disposable income that most people could never even begin to dream about or think about. I, and I, you know, I think we're, we're all relatively similar in this room in terms of, I don't look at myself as wealthy, but, but I get by. I'm comfortable. I, I can pay my bills most of the time, right? I, can, I have a house that, you know, that I has, keeps a roof over my head and has an air conditioner and, you know, a fridge with cold food inside. And I have some, I have some luxuries. I'm not, I'm not rich necessarily. I'm not wealthy necessarily, but, but I'm comfortable. I can afford medical insurance and, and once in a while we can afford to do something fun, right? Again, we're not spoiled, not wealthy, not, you know, by our standards here in America anyway, but I get by. And occasionally I have a little extra, occasionally. I think probably for most of us, not all, but most of us in the room, we kind of fall into a some, some somewhat similar category. It's not lifestyles of the rich and famous necessarily. It's not, you know, no MTV's not coming to check out our crib, right? <laughs> but we get by and we do pretty well. We, we, you know, it's, 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 it's a decent life. And so I have to ask myself, is the standard of wealth set by just the people that I think are wealthy? Or is it set by, you know, the vast majority of this world that would look at me and go, I wish I had what you had. You're so wealthy. I'll never forget when we we did the first trip to India, we were driving through that big city of Chennai. And it's just, I mean, it's a city of... It's a beautiful city, beautiful people and everything else, but it's a lot of squalor. You know, it's just a, a, lot, of, a lot of poverty. And we passed by this one uh, neighborhood kind of on the outskirts of that city that was a gated community. And we were told that's where the wealthiest of the wealthy live. And I remember looking through the gates of that community down the streets the, to the houses that I could see where the wealthiest of the wealthy lived. And it looked exactly like my neighborhood. I mean, it looked exactly, almost exactly like the neighborhood that I live in. And so I think at times we have to look at the blessings, especially as American Christians, look at the blessings that we've been given and go, you know, I, I need to gain a sense of perspective here. It's really easy to kind of look up at the, you know, whatever, the movie stars and, and power players of this world and go, oh, they're so wealthy and I'll never have what they have or whatever. But again, it's all about who's looking up at you too, you know? And so with that in mind, I like, I, well, if you flip over one page, uh, at least in my Bible, Bible it's one page, um, to chapter 18, if I can actually turn a page, which I evidently I can't. There it is. Chapter 18 tells this story. And a, a ruler asked him, talking about Jesus, asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this rich young ruler says, all these, excuse me, all these I've kept from my youth. 
When Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, and here, here's, here's the, the good part, sort of. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You want to know how dif- difficult? He tells us. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Have you ever seen a camel? Kind of big animal, right? It's like a horse and a half, right? You ever handled a needle? <laughs> Any possible way you could imagine cramming a camel through the eye of a needle? No, it's like that would be absolutely impossible. Like, like we hear that statement, it's like, man, Jesus, that's kind of rough. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get to heaven, to get to the kingdom of God? And evidently, we're not the only ones that are confused because the people listening to him said this. It says, uh, those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, here's the punchline, what's impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible with man is possible with God. It's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to get, to king, get into the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus was saying, it's impossible. It's impossible for a wealthy person to make it to heaven. But with God, the impossible is possible. What's Jesus actually saying? He's, he's, not, he's, he's trying to let people know, people of wealth, people with, with substance, people who have been blessed in their lives with, with stuff, and th- stuff and things, as Rick likes to say on Walking Dead, um, with, with, you know, of, 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 of stuff and, and, and wealth and money and houses and possessions and things like that. All of us that have tangible things of blessing in the here and the now. He says, it's nearly impossible for you to make it to heaven. What's he actually saying? For those of us who might have any degree of wealth, If you want to get to heaven, it's going to take a miracle. It's going to take a miracle. But the good news is, Jesus already took care of that miracle. He already took care of it. And so with God, the impossible is possible. But the reason Jesus tells, you know, talks to this rich guy this way, the reason he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the parable that he told, is because he wants us to know that you know, when we submit our lives to, to him, when we, when we start following Jesus, when we, we become one of his disciples, it's not just like a verbal agreement. It's not just like, oh, I kind of like Jesus. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stick around. I'll, you know, I'll come to church. I'll, you know, it's, he's asking us to give him his, our, our lives, give him our lives. He's asking us to turn everything over to him, submit all that we are and all that we have to him. Everything. And for us to hold back anything 
from Jesus is for us to not really understand what it means to follow him. We have to really give him everything. And in that, it means that we have to allow him to change our lives. And I'll, I'll raise my hand high and just say, like, I, I tend to be a person that struggles with selfless thinking. I do. I mean, I'm not the worst person in the world. I'm not even the worst person in this room looking around now and thinking about it, but <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, but, 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 here, but here's the thing. I, I, have, I have a trouble. I, I mean, I have, I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with really being selfless, with, with putting others before myself, with, with holding on to my stuff maybe a little bit too tightly. But I know there's hope for me because I've placed my hope in Jesus Christ and he, along with the Holy Spirit, has the power to change my life, to change the way I think about my life, to change the way I think about our lives and the world that we live in and the stuff that I have and the money that I make and everything that goes along with that, to change the way I think about those who are oppressed, to change, to heal. You know, Jesus did so much healing in his ministry. He's constantly helping the blind to see, the lame to walk, the, the deaf to hear right? And we as, especially as American Christians, need Jesus to heal our ears so that we can hear the cries of the oppressed and begin to have our hearts break for their plight. We need Jesus to heal our eyes so that we can begin to see the people around us that are pushed down and abused and, and put upon and taken advantage of all around us or in the things that we even purchase or whatever else so that we can see clearly and step up for them and do something about that. We need to have to be healed of our lameness so that we can put our faith to work, feet on the street doing something about it. This is the life that we're called to. It's not a life. We cannot afford to just simply sit back comfortable and kind of phone it in. We can't do that. So like the challenge for us is to kind of look into our lives and go, are there people that I've learned to walk around? Are there voices that I've silenced because I figure I can't hardly do anything about it anyway? So why do anything? Are there, are there ills of society that I do have the power to remedy, to help? We talked about this a few weeks ago. We can't solve the problem of poverty, but you can solve the problem of that guy's poverty, right? You can't fix it worldwide, but we can make a dent in it in Dixon. We can do something about it that way. <laughs> Just as the amazing, spectacular Spider-Man learned that with great power comes great responsibility, um, I think we have to remember for ourselves that what Jesus is trying to tell us with this story is that with great blessing comes great responsibility. Everything we have, everything you are, it's a blessing from God. It's like it could go away if I could snap, I would snap. I can't snap. I have sausage link fingers. All right. So, yeah, thanks. So, I mean, it can go away so fast. 
And, and so we, when you look, begin to look at it all as not only a gift and a blessing from God, but a stewardship. Like, he didn't just give you the family that he gave you all for you. He didn't just give you the job and the income that, that you have just for you. He didn't just give you the home and the possessions that you have just for you. It could be that part of that is a blessing to you and part of it is so that you can be a conduit in which he can bless someone else. And so we hold it all with an open hand and we just say, God, call it back at any time. Call it back at any time. And help me to see those around me that are close to your heart. Who's close to the heart of Christ? The poor, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, the prisoner. These are the people who the Bible tells us are close to the heart of Christ. That's where it's what his heart breaks for. It's what he wants his people to learn to have their hearts broken for. We are, I mean, we, it's, it's really easy for us to just kind of sit back as Christians and go, yeah, God's going to solve all this someday. But it could be, it very well could be, and I think if you read Scripture, you'll find that I think this actually is the plan. His plan is for a lot of it to be solved right here and right now and through us. Through us. And so let's not be, you know, the ugly, wealthy, you know, whatever person that the Bible describes so often oblivious to the world around us, actually propping ourselves up on their backs. Instead, let's be the person that sees where pain is happening, sees where oppression is happening, has our heart broken for it, listening closely to the Holy Spirit so that we know how to move in those situations and make a difference. This is the life that we're called to. And this is great, coming together and singing songs and hearing a live band every week and you know, that, that, you know, hearing whatever, the most amazing sermons you've ever heard in your life. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> hearing all of that. I mean, you know, whatever, great kids program. This is all great, but this is a fragile kingdom. It'll come down in a heartbeat. The kingdom we're building is much more eternal. It has much more to do with how we're living our lives outside these walls than what we do while we're here on Sunday, right? So let's put this gospel to work and actually live the lives that we're called to live. We're called to be change makers, difference makers in this world, kingdom change agents in this world, not just the world to come, in this world right now. So allow your heart to be broken. There's a lot you got to get through to, you know, to, a lot of voices telling you the opposite, a lot. I mean, all the talking heads on TV and you know, on the radio and I mean, they, they, they spout off, you know, platitudes of, that are honestly, that tickle your ears and, and, it, and it, it makes you think, oh, yeah, 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 I got to, you know, whatever. And then, but if you compare it to scripture, you're like, okay, that's not even close. It's not what I'm supposed to be. So believe whatever you want to believe about your politics. But when it comes to your life, we're all liberals. <laughs> when it comes to your life, Every one of us have to care about the poor. Every one of us have to care about the refugee. Every one of us have to do something about the oppressed. Believe what you want to about the government, but the church 
has to be about healing the woes of this world. Amen? All right, let's do that. Okay, that's good. Let's, let's close. Father, I love you, and I thank you so much for your word today. And I thank you, even when your word is challenging to us, and God, it, it ruffles me, it, it puts a mirror up to my face and shows me that uh, I may resemble the rich man a little more than I resemble uh, the guy that got to go be with you. And so, God, I find that upsetting, and, and I don't want that to be my story So please change in me, change in my heart and in my thinking what needs to be changed so that I lined up with your vision, your vision of your kingdom. God, do the impossible in all of us and and change us, change our hearts. God, help us to view all that we are, every position that we have, every dollar that we make, every possession that we own as, um, as things that have been entrusted to us to use for your glory. Help us to do that. We love you. And uh, again, we just thank you. Lead us and guide us in the way in, uh, that you want us to go. And we'll give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.